Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up today, Leslie Jamison and the empathy exams. First, a couple of emails from yesterday. You'll recall we talked about bicycling and sharing the road with drivers, with cars, and uh, how drivers and cyclists get along or don't get along, and the experience of cycling, biking culture. A couple of emails came in after the program. This is from Chris in Santa Clara. He says, there's always a pecking order. The man who mentioned that he was forced to ride only trails because of the danger makes me think of a very real problem in southern Utah trail systems. Only this is bikers versus hikers and runners. The bikers often seem to forget that those on foot have rights to the trails as well and are sometimes aggressive. I've participated in many trail races, and the bikers are notorious for sabotaging trail markings because they don't want the runners on their trails, which are, uh, quote-unquote, he puts in quotes, which are on BLM and other public property. This seems to be true everywhere except Moab, where there are groups who work for all interests and respect each other. That's Chris in Santa Clara. I'm going to call uh, come in uh, after the program, talk to this uh, gentleman. Uh, if I can uh, remember his comments correctly, he says he drives a large truck. He doesn't mind uh, cyclists on the road. It's their road, too. But he says they need to be mindful of those large trucks. They can't stop on the dime. Uh, so everybody needs to be aware of everyone else. Turning to our topic for today, beginning with her experience as a medical actor paid to act out symptoms for medical students to diagnose, Leslie Jamison's essays ask essential questions about our basic understanding of others. How should we care about one another? How can we feel another's pain, especially when pain can be assumed, distorted, or performed? Is empathy a tool by which to test or even grade each other? In her book, The Empathy Exams, she draws from her own experiences of illness and injury, it also explores everything from poverty tourism to phantom diseases, street violence to reality television, illness to incarceration. And Jameson explores ways in which we can and cannot comprehend the pain suffered by others and even ourselves. By confronting pain, she uncovers a personal and cultural urgency to feel. She was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Los Angeles. She's lived in Iowa, Nicaragua, New Haven, New York, and worked as a baker, office temp, innkeeper, and tutor, and a medical actor. And uh, she's written a novel, Gin Closet, this latest collection of essays, The Empathy Exams. And uh, she is columnist for the New York Times Book Review, currently finishing her doctoral dissertation at Yale about addiction narratives. She lives in Brooklyn above a smoke shop, she says. Leslie Jamison, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on. Appreciate you uh, being with us. I'd like to start with this interesting occupation or job. I'd never heard of it before I started reading about you. Um, medical actor. T tell us what this is. Well, it's funny. If people know about medical acting, they tend to know about it because it was briefly on Seinfeld. Kramer on Seinfeld has a, has a stint as a medical actor, and so that's how it tends to enter the public imagination if it's there. But I've watched a lot of Seinfeld. Yeah. I totally missed that. So yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to look <laughs> that you up. Can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine Kramer pretending to be very, very ill and medical students trying to diagnose them. It's, um, it's rich territory. So <laughs> um, it's, yeah, basically you get, when I was working as a medical actor, I worked um, with mainly third and fourth year medical students. And it was basically designed to help them translate what they've been learning in books to actual lived practice and experience. So I would have 
you know, I usually, I worked about four or five different patients. And for each patient, I would have kind of a 10 to 12 page description of what my problem was, whether it was a pregnant woman with preeclampsia, a 20-something suffering from depression, a woman with appendicitis, um, and I would be told kind of all these details about my life, but also what my symptoms were and how I was supposed to act those symptoms out. And based on that and this sort of a 15-minute encounter between me and the medical student, the medical student would try to guess, figure out what was wrong with me and I would be evaluating them on how well they had figured out what was wrong with me, but also how they had treated me during that process of figuring it out. So the, uh, that's, that's sort of where the idea of empathy comes into play, how well they had displayed that empathy. You, you were a, an SP, a standardized patient, uh, uh, acting toward the norms of the disease you were given. Were, were there others who were non-SPs? Every, everybody was an SP. SP just refers to the, the kind of script that we were given that described okay. who we were and what we were supposed to be acting out. So, and that was often how, um, that was the kind of sh- shorthand around the office, right? There were the med students and the SPs, so those were our categories. Okay, okay. Um, so this is a very interesting way, very rich way to get into this idea of, of empathy, it occurred to me as I was reading uh, through this, you're, you're you're trying to get at this, you know, this space between people, uh, and how we want to share what's going on inside, and how we also want to conceal that. Um, and you use the vehicle of, of of pain. Could I guess you could have used I don't know happiness or anything else. Why, why pain? That was the tool at hand. Well, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, for me, I think some of why pain ends up being a useful way to look at how people understand each other or don't understand each other is that pain pushes us into a kind of vulnerability where we really need something from other people, or at least in my own experience, pain makes me need from others. I want that pain to be visible. I mean, and sometimes it's complicated. Sometimes there's also a kind of shame around the pain, but I feel like at my core, my pain is seeking something from other people. It's seeking comfort. It's seeking some kind of understanding. Um, and I feel an urge when I see other people in pain to connect with them in some way, to get inside that pain, even if I know I can't do that fully. And so I think pain is something that kind of magnetizes us towards each other, and but at the same time is some, sometimes the, really one of the hardest things to possibly understand when it's going on inside another person. How do you, in the book, you, and you get at this from many different angles, but maybe as a starting point, how, how do you define, in a simple way, empathy? I guess the most simple definition of empathy that I would use is imagining your way into the experience of another person. Imagining your way into a, the experience of another person, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, the, these medical students, uh, one of, I think it's item number 31, um, interesting detail. Um, they're judged on, and I guess you're judging them on whether they voiced empathy for your situation or problem. It's not enough just to feel uh, about another person's problem. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that was so interesting and sometimes really awkward about the dynamic of medical actors and standardized patients was that there really was a sort of rubric to it. And sometimes we think about emotional connection or empathy as a very intuitive, organic thing. 
But in this context, it was really like, did you say that must be really hard? Like, it wasn't enough if they sort of, if their face was showing this kind of concern or they were, you know, stroking your arm or something. They really had to be explicit about this demonstration of empathy, which on the one hand felt like it was prioritizing something important, but on the other hand, there's something a little bit schematic about that or that can feel schematic about that. Hmm. There, there are four interesting range of, of uh, you know, fictitious patients. One that stood out to me was a, a grandmother with uh, chlamydia. I don't think you played her, but uh, it was another actor. Uh, and, and you point out that there's a whole cascading, um, how, how do you put that, whole cascading uh, uh, row of events, um, background to that. That I guess mm-hmm. if, the, if the medical student were perceptive enough, he could, or she could peel that away, or at least part, partially peel that away. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, well, one thing you're correct that I I never played her, and that was actually one of the frustrating parts of being a standardized patient was there were so many fascinating cases and so many cases I would have loved to act out, but you're kind of limited by your demographic stats. So there was a there was a adult male case that I really always wanted to play that had to do with an imagined parasite, and then there was this elderly female case that also seemed very emotionally intriguing to me. But I was I could only be young women; that was my lot. So I was a little always a little bit limited in that way. Um, but yeah, I think one of the things that I loved about how standardized patient worked was that it wasn't just like you had five symptoms on a checklist and you had to act them out. There was really this, it was almost like a kind of method acting or something. There was this expectation that you were really stepping into a whole life. So you had a backstory, you had parents, you had children, you had life history, and that part of what your med student was expected to do in order to do a good job was to gather some of these more peripheral pieces and fit them all together, either to figure out what was wrong with you or to get you to kind of open up enough to gain trust and sort of get at some of the root issues. Tell me about Stephanie Phillips. Uh, This is a a, a fictitious person you played who had conversion disorder. So, yeah, so Stephanie was kind of my wheelhouse case. He was the case that I played most frequently, and the deal with Stephanie was that she had lost somebody very important to her and that that grief, because she had never really dealt with that grief, she hadn't gone into therapy, she wasn't really talking about it with anybody, that grief was manifesting as seizures, which is what conversion disorder is. It's something emotional that manifests as a physical symptom. So she, in her mind, she was having these seizures, and that's what she came into the doctor to talk about, and it was the doctor's job to figure out that the seizures were actually about something else. Hmm. And it, this is interesting. You're playing this person, but she's not supposed to know, of course, the some of the things that you know as the actor. Yeah, no, and that was that was a very, you know, I'm I'm somebody who, I guess because I'm a writer, I love to explain things, probably I love to explain things too much. So it was a good, I think it was probably good practice for me to be in this situation where I had more information than my patient was supposed to have. And, and on top of that, there's another layer. Um, 
the medical student is essentially playing a part, uh, and and you say you and the medical student, you as the actor, the medical student being tested, we're holding a fiction between us like a jump rope. And sometimes the student forgets. One time student uh, forgot you were pretending, started asking detailed questions about your fake hometown. So there, there are many layers to this, and it occurred to me that's very much like real life sometimes. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you pointed that out because I really agree with that. That I think for some people the natural inclination is to think this setup, where both of you guys are acting, is nothing like real life because both of you know you don't really have the condition. You're pretending. The doctor is pretending. But I really agree with you that I think that this kind of role playing shares more with lived experience than we sometimes admit, because I think, you know, so often when we're behaving towards each other, either expressing sympathy or asking questions or, you know, trying to do right by each other, whatever that means, I think sometimes we really are acting from a sense of this is what I should be doing or this is what the other person expects me to do. And I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. I think it's, I think it's a great thing to hold ourselves to certain standards of how we should behave, even when we don't intuitively feel like behaving that way. Hmm. You say in, in, in your the opening essay, it's called The Empathy Exam, this gives the title to the book, you say that your Stephanie script was 12 pages long, but that you think mainly about what it doesn't say. Yeah, well, that was, like I, like I said, I love that we were sort of invited to, the as standardized patients, we were invited to think about our roles in this really holistic way, but I think almost the more we were given, the more I was given about Stephanie, the more real she became to me, and in that, the more I became aware of how much more there was to her than what I had been given. So if I learned a little bit about her brother who died and how much that loss impacted her, it just set off all of these other questions in my mind. Why did her brother mean so much to her? What had they shared together? What was her grief like? Um, and I think that life can work that way, too. I think our curiosity about other people can operate like a kind of domino effect. The more you learn, the more you want to know, the more that you have a sense of somebody, the more the kind of mystery of them deepens. And so I think that's part of how a 12-page script can start to feel like 112 pages of unwritten scripts or 112 pages more. Also, there's this tension that you, you talk about with, with regard to Stephanie, and then you start talking about experiences that you've had as well. Between how you term it, you say, I've thought about Stephanie Phillips' seizures in terms of possession and privacy. We want people to know, and sometimes we don't want people to know. Yeah, I think that gets back to your earlier question, and um, your earlier great question about why pain as subject matter, because I do think pain can pain can both make us want other people to see us. I want you to see how this hurts, right? But I think pain can also, you know, we can feel ashamed of what hurts or scared for somebody else to see it. And um, one of the most interesting, you know, I did a lot of readings for this book. I have done readings and different kinds of events. And one of the most interesting ones was I spoke to a group of therapists and mental health practitioners about empathy um, in Connecticut. And one of the things that one of those therapists said that really struck me was that when you're talking about other people's pain, 
you really have to respect their privacy. So when she starts seeing a new client as a therapist, she doesn't sit down on day one and ask them about the deepest, darkest things inside of them. You know, you, you have to build for that and you have to kind of respect that people don't want to immediately rip away the skin or the surface and show you what's underneath. Mm. Uh, some of the medical patients, uh, you say, um, want to control the situation. Now, as Stephanie, you're in a very interesting position because uh, she's wanting to to keep some of this private, and they're and they're in a I guess in an empathetic way they're supposed to peel away the layers. Uh, some some medical students will come in and try to forcefully maintain eye contact, and that's their way of uh, of control. Others will come in, I guess, a little more humbly and, tr- and try to uh, have you invite them in. Yeah, and I do think, and I, yeah, and I think that's very related. This idea that we might think of empathy in exclusively positive terms, or I think that before I wrote this collection, my tendency was to think about empathy in exclusively positive terms. Like it's always a gift to somebody else to try to figure out what is happening inside of them. But it's it's also empathy can be a kind of bid for power. And what you're describing, you know, the med student who comes in and is really trying to maintain eye contact or is, you know, just trying to kind of dig, dig, dig into the heart of what's going on with me. Yeah, it can be about empathy, but it can also be really about control and wanting another person to be visible in part so that you can feel in control of whatever situation you're in with them. And and that's a big part of what was interesting to me in this collection is thinking about not necessarily the dark side of empathy, but the, all of the emotional complexity and convolution and peril of empathy. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the peril, <laughs> as I was reading through your, your collection, it, it, it occurred to me that I think we judge ourselves and we judge others based on our perceptions of their ability for empathy. And then there's, sometimes there's guilt associated with it, certainly judgment. Yeah, I do. I I think that both of those emotions, guilt and judgment, can come into play. And that's part of why the grading rubric for these med students felt like a useful entry point to me, because it kind of makes explicit what I think can happen a lot with empathy, that we can, we can easily judge other people on how well they're providing empathy or how much they're providing empathy. And I think we can take on a lot of guilt about our own capacity for empathy. And it becomes a kind of chicken and egg thing because I think the more empathy we feel, the more guilt we can feel about what we're doing or what we're left, we're leaving undone. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue our discussion with Leslie Jameson. For interesting new books, collection of uh, essays, it's called The Empathy Exams. The starting point is Leslie Jameson's job that she had as a medical actor, paid to act out symptoms for medical students to diagnose, and then she she judges them uh, based on their ability to get at the symptoms, but also their their empathy. And uh, then she, she gets at this idea from many different angles. We'll get into talking about uh, James Agee. Um, and uh, Leslie Jameson reading him in, was it Nicaragua? 
Uh, I was or right Bolivia? Here, right after I came back from Nicaragua. Yeah. Um, and uh, women in Bolivia who who uh, sewed their, their lips shut, some very interesting uh, experiences. Uh, she gets into in the book uh, Ultra Marathons. Um, and, and a friend of hers who was incarcerated, many different angles to get at this central idea of, uh, of how we connect and, and empathy. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the USU Extension 4-H and Youth Programs, saluting the 4-H volunteer leaders and parents who work with and support youth in their development of various skills and enabling them to reach their fullest potential. Information at utah4h.org. Many analysts and President Obama call natural gas a cleaner fossil fuel, but its main ingredient is methane, and it may not be so clean after all. Methane, and this is what scientists are finding, is almost as dirty as coal. In fact, some studies have shown that natural gas from cradle to grave is dirtier than coal. Counting the climate costs of natural gas. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Beginning with her experience as a medical actor, paid to act out symptoms for medical students to diagnose, Leslie Jameson's essays ask essential questions about our basic understanding of others. How should we care about one another? How can we feel another's pain, especially when pain can be assumed, distorted, or performed? Is empathy a tool by which to test or even grade each other? She draws from her own experiences and explores everything from poverty tourism to phantom diseases, street violence to reality television, and illness to incarceration. A very interesting collection of essays. It's called The Empathy Exams, and Leslie Jameson is our guest for the hour. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would uh, like to. We'd love to have your perspective. 1-800-826-1495 is the number, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at our email address, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. There's a very interesting passage in the book. This is where I'd like to go next, uh, if that's okay. Uh, You quote Joan Didion, an experience she had in El Salvador from her or I guess it's her essay or collection, uh, Salvador, and then you connect that up with some experiences you had in uh, in Bolivia. Why don't you tell us first about what uh, Joan Didion was was talking about there? Yeah, well, um, she describes this experience she had in a supermarket in El Salvador when she was writing about a period of intense violence during their civil war, and she's sort of walking around the supermarket and seeing all these kind of quasi-luxury products or products that seem like they would belong in a very different world than the violent El Salvador that she's inside of. Um, And she has this moment where she thinks it would be so easy to pull out all the irony, the irony of seeing all these luxury products in a way that would kind of almost... To me, when I read her, it seems like she's saying we're almost be making fun of the situation in a certain way to reach for that easy irony. Um, and so I'm thinking about that. Joan Didion is a real model for me as a writer and that moment of self-awareness where she says there's something that feels like it would be the easy thing to do as a writer, but I don't necessarily want to do that. Um, that is an inspirational kind of move for me. And so when I found myself in a supermarket in Bolivia, and I was thinking about sort of picking apart, you know, all the things I was seeing, um, 
and how to kind of put together this kind of weird capitalist uh, bounty in this supermarket with all the ways that Bolivia is very troubled as a country. Um, and I was thinking about some of the things that were happening in Bolivia at the time. Um, I was sort of reflecting back to that moment where Didion had decided not to take the easy way out. And you say that um, you, you've often found yourself in the, in the role that she casts aside. Isle-wandering, detailed pillaging self who comes for water-purifying tablets, leaves with the price tag Cliff's Notes of a country's suffering. Um, that's, I guess that's a trap that any of us who, who go to a different experience could, could fall into. And, and that kind of gets us in the idea of poverty tourism, which again I hadn't heard of until I you know, started reading the materials for, for, for your book. It's, in some areas, it's booming. Yeah, well, poverty tourism is something that I think is happening in a number of different countries. I've heard about it in the context of favelas in Rio de Janeiro or some of the um, slums in India. I know that after the um, success of that film, Slumdog Millionaire, there were tours in India that were sort of showing visitors, like, here are the kind of slums that the characters in that movie might have come from. Um, And poverty tourism is something that is really troubling and I think rightfully makes people, myself included, very uncomfortable, like this idea that intense socioeconomic suffering and disparity would be something that you would just look at for an afternoon, right? Like, that's really troubling. Um, But I was also... I'm also interested in what maybe a good impulse is there or can be there, which is to look at what's hard or wrong in the world. Um, And as with so many of the things that I write about, I'm really intrigued when there seems to be some sort of tension or conflict or uh, there's something maybe uh, noble about wanting to look at other people's suffering, but something that can go so horribly wrong with that impulse. And poverty tourism seems like one of those one of those sites of conflict. I was was reading up on it once I'd learned the term. um, I was reading about a man uh, in India, I think he's an American, who uh, took his son out on one of these tours, and and he wanted to teach his son that there is poverty and suffering in the world, so I guess that's a good impulse. But it it, it is a knife edge, isn't it? it (laughs) This impulse can go very wrong. If you just think about this, there, there is something a little bit unsavory about it. Yeah, no, and I think that example illustrates exactly that kind of tension that I was talking about where, right, a father wants to show his son maybe something, make his son more aware of his own privilege, and that's a good thing. But, you know, I think one of the dangers of something like poverty tourism is that you could feel good about yourself simply for making the effort, or you could feel good about yourself like, oh, okay, look at me, I... um you know, I became aware of this thing for an afternoon and that that the do good the do good or impulse to become aware sort of takes the place of actually doing something to make the situation better for the person that who's suffering you're looking at. We're uh, talking with Leslie Jamison about her uh, book of uh, essays. It's called The Empathy Exams. Uh, and it's uh, getting a uh, rave reviews so congratulations on that um very interesting book and uh it's out from gray wolf press 
We're talking with Leslie Jameson on the program today. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495 or join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. So extending this idea of poverty tourism, you... Uh, something unsavory about it, of course. But you can't take everybody home. You can't fix all the problems. Um, and and in, I guess this may be best illustrated by an experience you had. I think this was Nicaragua. You, you talk about this idea of, of guilt and could I have done more. You talk about a, a man you knew who was uh, I guess sleeping on your doorstep. And you, you awaken him so you can get past. Later on, you think, maybe I should have invited him inside. Yeah, I think um, I I do try to work through that memory of you know that that he was actually a, a boy. Um, that moment kind of crystallized for me something very troubling about being a visitor in a place where there's an intense amount of poverty, which is you're sort of right up next to it, but you're not necessarily doing anything to make it better and you become very aware of the difference between your situation and the situation of others and in a sense like you know when I was just going about my business living a fairly privileged life in America like so many people do in America where we have beds to sleep in um, we have homes we have enough food on the table there's a kind of comfort in being physically very far away from people who don't have those things but part of what was true for me in Nicaragua was that I was looking at and facing and being very close to lives that were extremely difficult in ways that my life had never been uh, tell me about your you had pretty traumatic experience in Nicaragua. You punched in the face and uh, it, it, enough that you, you had to get surgery from a, I guess, pretty ex expensive plastic surgeon. Yeah, I, I, um, I was uh, a victim of street violence in Nicaragua. I was punched in the face. And, you know, the part of when I write about that experience, I was wanting to write about a few different things. Um, on one level, I was wanting to write about just how hard it was to tell that story. Like, so, you know, I was living in Nicaragua for a fairly brief period of time. Um, one of the things that happened to me there was I got punched in the face by a stranger. And when I came back to the States, I was just aware of how hard it was to tell people about that in a way that actually surprised me. Like, I would struggle with the language. Should I say I was mugged? Should I say I was punched? Should I say I was a victim of assault? Like, every one of those phrases felt a little bit off to me. So I would often find myself kind of stuttering or trying to choke out the words and kept getting it wrong or felt like I was either making too big a deal of it or downplaying it. Or And so I really, the essay became, for me, a genuine attempt to just tell the story um, and I end up doing it in a kind of um, twisted, weird, broken way, but a way that actually felt pretty honest to me. So um, that was one of the things I wanted to write about. But I also was interested in writing about, you know, I did end up getting surgery to fix it. And that surgery, the fact that I could get that surgery was also a testimony to my privilege. And I wanted to acknowledge that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You 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 write about this. This is just you know, my heart went out to them. Just a brief passage. Boys in Nicaragua, I guess, addicted to glue, running around runny nose with uh, sort of baggy pants, and you just you just have this picture of 
that's life. That's life for them. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that picture was a vivid one because it's a vivid one for me as well. You know, I, um, one of the things that's shocking to me about um, the dynamics of glue addiction, which is something that's not just true in Central America and Latin America, but it's a big problem in Africa as well and, and probably elsewhere in the world, is that, you know, certain glue companies, like, could take out the chemicals in their products and make them addictive, but they don't because that's part of their market, um, which is yet another, to me, example of the ways that big, developed capitalist countries are really, really connected to the lives of people in the developing world who are suffering. Um, and But often those connections um, and often those like money connections are invisible to us, um, willfully invisible to us. And so... I don't know, in some small way, I think part of what I want to do is just make those worlds a little bit more visible. Yeah, that's 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 outrageous, isn't it? They could remove the chemicals, yeah. but, they, but they don't. Yeah, wow. Um, so uh, I wonder if we could get into talking about uh, James Agee. And this line, uh, you say, I loved getting sad about Agee because his sadness wasn't mine. So I have to back up. And uh, so you're, you were reading Let Us Now uh, Praise Famous Men, which I've never read, and you say it turns out it's not about famous men. I'm, I'm familiar with uh, just a fragment which is put to music by Samuel Barber, a lot of people are, I think. That's what we think about, I, a lot of us, when we think about that book. Tell us a little bit about that book and then and then what A.G. was going for. Yeah, well, so Let Us Now Breathe Famous Men is this very long, you know, I think 420-page book that started A.G.'s worked for Fortune magazine and Fortune in the 1930s and Fortune magazine sent him down to the south to write about three white uh, tenant farmer sharecropper families um, to write about their lives and their labor how that economy worked and um, AG wrote a piece that I think was not what Fortune was looking for, and eventually he kind of went rogue and just wrote his own account of what he felt when he saw these sharecropper families, what their lives were like, um, and then, you know, some of his own feelings of guilt at becoming a spectator to their lives. So the book itself is this really crazy, very intense, I think very beautiful and compelling account of poverty and account of Ag's experience of looking at poverty. So there's a lot of there's a lot of like Ag's heart and soul on those pages in a way that I think infuriates some people because they think you know Ag should stop writing so much about himself or his presence becomes kind of oppressive. But and I feel that sometimes too. But I, I'm also very compelled by this sense of part of what he needed to write down was um, how it felt to be an observer. And a lot of guilt in the book. You you say yes. There is a lot of guilt. Well, because that was a big part of how it felt to observe to him, to think yeah. about, um, you know, everything he was seeing and, you know, both why did he have so much privilege when he didn't and also why, you know, he was very aware of everything he couldn't or wasn't doing for them. So let, I'm going to read this uh, paragraph, and I, I quoted the first sentence in it. Uh, very interesting. Now that we have the background on A.G., you say, I loved getting sad about A.G. because his sadness wasn't mine. My face was claustrophobic, and A.G. was something else. He was something I wasn't. Tragedy is secondhand. Faulkner wrote that, which meant to me, families in Alabama hurt more than I ever would. 
and I could show up at a dingy bar and admit that. This wasn't enough, but it was something. A.G. felt this about his own book. It wasn't enough, but it was something. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, in a way, what I was saying earlier about A.G. is ostensibly writing about these three farmer families in the book, but actually what we're getting is a lot of A.G., too, a lot of A.G.'s thoughts and mind and heart. And part of what I felt when I read A.G. was that I was reading A.G., I was reading A.G. writing about these families, but as I was reading him, I was really also kind of consumed by my own guilt and thinking about my own life. So I both kind of, I wanted A.G. and reading A.G. to be an escape from my life, but I also felt kind of flooded with my own thoughts as I was reading him, which was like an enactment of what had happened to him when he was looking at these farmer families. So, um, and as I briefly mentioned earlier, I was reading A.G. right when I came back from Nicaragua, right in the aftermath of getting punched and right in the aftermath of feeling my own set of kind of guilt feelings about um, what I had, the poverty I'd witnessed when I was down there. So I was, A.G. was getting linked up to that experience in my mind. You also say that um, what you felt when you came back and had this, after having this traumatic experience of being punched in the face, had to, you know, had to get surgery, um, I guess what maybe what we're expected to feel is, I don't know, release, you go to a new level, you're, you're opened up by the experience. That wasn't your experience. Yeah, I mean, I think... I do think sometimes suffering or difficult experiences can open us up. They can make us aware of, they can make us grateful for what we have. They can make us aware of how difficult life can be for other people. But I also think I wanted to be honest about the fact that sometimes for me, going through difficult experiences has made me feel incredibly self-involved and self-focused. And it feels important to kind of confess that as well and, and, to not talk about the experience of suffering as something that's entirely noble or something that makes you kind of then entirely willing or able to minister to the suffering of others. Hmm. So I guess, what's the factor, you do you think, that that takes us one way or the other? You think it can be one way or the other, right? You know, I don't know. I kind of want to turn that, part of me wants to turn that question around a little bit. I mean, I'm curious about your thoughts of... of of how how it could work both ways. I mean, I think sometimes it's about time. Like, for me at least, I think when I'm right in the midst of a painful experience or right in the aftermath of that experience, I am really deep inside my own life, but with a little bit of time and distance, you know, a year out or two years out, having gone through that hard thing can make me more aware of difficulties that resemble that hard thing in other people's lives or maybe difficulties more generally in other people's lives. But I don't know. What it, where, yeah. where do you come down? That's interesting. That's interesting you say that, you know, maybe it is time. I've experienced that. Or very self-involved at first, and then it, uh, you know, it helps me to be more empathetic in, in the, in, you know, as time passes. On the other hand, I've known people who, for whom, uh, you know, they're, they're just sort of trapped in their own suffering for a long time, as long as I've known them. And people who mm-hmm. immediately are empathetic after a traumatic event, and uh, and start reaching out to others. So, mm-hmm. I, I guess I don't know for sure. Uh, you you go on to to say that empathy. Talking about AG, empathy is contagion. What do you mean there? 
Well, I think that well, part of what I what I want to get at with empathy is contagion is the way that you can kind of pass along certain feelings by writing about them and that that can maybe be one of the tasks of a writer is to see something painful or unfair or unjust and by describing that thing in AG's case, describing this farming economy and the families who lived in that economy, that he can kind of pass along a certain set of feelings to his readers, um, or that I felt that when I was reading AG, I felt kind of infected by some of the feelings he was describing, some of the guilt that he was describing. Hmm. Tell me about these women in Bolivia. This is another image that just really, really stays with you. So you're you're talking about this sort of this juxtaposition of of feelings. You you quote Didion in in El Salvador as sort of moving past irony. You're you know you you're writing down things in a supermarket in Bolivia. Then the next thing you recount is these these women up above La Paz who sew their lips shut. Yeah. So the that was something that. I read about happening when I was down in Bolivia and I was thinking about, you know, at the same time as I was wandering the aisles of the supermarket, sort of writing down cool stuff that I was seeing, like, it's really difficult. These difficult, kind of unthinkable things were happening around me. Um, one of the, the women who live in, so essentially above La Paz is another community called El Alto, which is where um, it's a much poorer community and it's where a lot of um, sort of indigenous ancestry people live um, and there was a basically a protest or a strike amongst sex workers in El Alto who were increasingly becoming victims of violence and really weren't getting much official protection from the law and they felt like nobody was listening to their kind of cries of protest and nobody was really seeing what happened to them and so when they sewed their lips shut it was a way to kind of make physical what they felt was already true which was that they essentially didn't have voices or they didn't have voices that other people were listening to and so they took this physical action to kind of say look this is how we feel we feel silence and um like you were struck by that detail i was struck by that detail too which is part of why i wanted to give it home in my writing and so the, the I guess they were saying through this, as you pointed out, that they you know make physical what they already knew. They didn't have a voice. Do you? How do you make that broader? Is that is that a metaphor in any way for? I don't know, for for us, life generally. Yeah. Well, I I I mean I think it could be a metaphor for a number of things. I think part of how it connects in my mind to the larger project of my book is that. I am interested in seeking out people in the world who feel like either that they don't have voices or that, that their voices aren't being heard and trying to not necessarily give them voices or speak for them because I think that there can be something really problematic in trying to speak for people, but um, and at least recognizing them and, um, you know, giving them a place in my pages, even just by quoting them, or I think that can be the work of a journalist, right, is to seek out voices of people who aren't getting heard and give those voices a home. Um, and so when I think about those women in Bolivia with their sewed up lips and the kind of horror of those sewed up lips, that to me kind of gets back to some of the prerogatives of journalism and especially 
social justice oriented journalism that is about sort of how can we seek out unheard voices and and give them space. Having thought about this, a whole you know book's worth of essays on empathy, um, I could see this going, you know, many different ways for you personally. Um, you know, you just get tired of thinking about the whole thing. You maybe get really guilty about uh, you know your lack of empathy when you're more aware of it more than maybe a lot of us are who don't think about it all day. What uh, what's the effect then on you, and where where's that sliding scale where you think we we should be? Yeah, that's a great question, and I have to say, um, I think it's a very <laughs> empathetic question to think about all the different ways that that could go. I mean, I do, I do think uh, guilt is a feeling that I'm very familiar with, and in certain ways, thinking so much about empathy has deepened my sense of guilt. You know, I think about all the other careers a person could have, being a doctor, working in public health, and being a lawyer, you know, and some of those careers are more able to directly address some of the conditions that I write about. And so then one of the ways that my guilt takes effect is I think about, well, what, what can a writer do? Um, and is that ever important enough? Um, and does that ever have anything close to the impact of some of these other um, professions or ways of being in the world? But, um, I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened with this book is which has been both gratifying and a little bit exhausting is, you know, a lot of people have responded to this book, which has been really and truly wonderful for me to feel like what I've written has struck some kind of chord. Um, but it also means I get a lot of feedback from people. Like when I do readings, people come up and talk to me or um, I get a lot of emails, like have a public email account. And, you know, I hear a lot of people's stories. You know, people people write and tell me about their lives, or they tell me about difficult things that they've gone through, or they tell me about things that they're struggling with. And I feel a strong desire to respond to every single one of those people. Um, but I, well, <laughs> I also only have a limited amount of sort of time and being in this world because I'm mortal and we're all mortal. And um, so I think that in a way it's like the issue of empathy has sort of taken on a life of its own because of this book, but also outside of this book where I felt a lot of that impulse playing out where people sort of confess a bit and then I want to respond to those confessions or at least tell them that that's the, I, I hear you. I hear you and it means something to me that you wrote to me or that you stayed after this reading to talk to me. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot of kind of it's a lot of humanity. So, mm -hmm. yeah, very interesting. Uh, by the way, you're I guess you're you're working on your latest thing, doctoral dissertation at Yale about addiction narratives. So that that'd be the next thing. Yeah, I um I uh, actually the the research that I've been doing at Yale is going to be part of a longer book of narrative nonfiction is going to be part memoir, part cultural history, part literary criticism. Um, and so that's, that's the next book that I'm, I'm working on. So. Yeah. Well, we're out of time. A very interesting, uh, much else in the book. So uh, do get it and, uh, and you'll have a good time reading it. The Empathy Exams is the name of the book, collection of essays from Leslie uh, Jameson. Um, and we appreciate you so much being our guest for the hour. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Tomorrow on the program, we'll uh, have a program ripped from the headlines, uh, the release, uh, the, the prisoner exchange uh, concerning Bo Bergdahl in Afghanistan has uh, created a firestorm of uh, controversy. And uh, a professor at University of Utah, Amos Giora, 
who's been connected with the Israeli military and uh, diplomatic corps there in Israel and is an expert on security and uh, prisoner exchanges will be talking with us. He recently uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times about this. We'll get his perspective on the Bo Bergdahl case tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Bluegrass Evanston, presenting the fourth annual Beer, Brats, and Bluegrass Festival, featuring Wyoming's Jalen Crossland, The Lab Dogs, Unstrung, and Cedar Breaks Bluegrass. Saturday, June 21st, in the Historic Depot in Evanston. Information at bluegrassevanston.com. Commentator Thad Box. Earlier this year, President Obama and three living ex-presidents gathered to celebrate what many historians consider President Lyndon Johnson's greatest accomplishment, the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. That celebration brought back memories of my own civil rights journey and the unique effect people in Utah had on my understanding people different from me. I was raised in Texas. About a third of its citizens were Negroes. I had no direct contact with a black person until Moses Brown and I were drafted into the Army and took that solemn step into military service together. When Jenny and I came to Utah State University, there were five black athletes on campus who attended a Sunday school class I refereed at the Presbyterian Church. All were strangers in a strange land, newcomers and non-Mormons in Utah. Our home became a safe house in a culture with a peculiar religion that denied black people priesthood in their church. Jenny and I returned to Texas in 1963 as newly converted civil rights advocates. Culturally blinded in our youth, we then realized that Texas injustices were much more widespread and hurtful than those of the Mormons. Today, Utah is more racially diverse than ever before. White, black, brown, and yellow children walk by our house on their way to school. Biracial couples live throughout our town. Now courts throughout America are interpreting individuals' constitutional civil rights to include behavior that makes some Utahns very uncomfortable. If the laws are upheld, an adult person may marry, cohabit with, or raise children with other consenting adults, regardless of race, gender, or religious persuasion. And the individuals, not government or church, will determine who may use birth control, carry a firearm, or vote. Lyndon Johnson pushed through the, and signed the Civil Rights Act that will make him one of our great presidents. Some say he acted for political gain. But long before he entered politics, young Lyndon taught barefooted Latino school kids. He shared his lunch with those kids and combed lice from their hair. Fighting poverty and racial prejudice drove him into politics. Being an unsophisticated and crude product of Texas poverty did not keep him from becoming a great man. And I'm trying, working hard, to forgive him for getting us messed up in that old Asian war. This is Thad Box. I'm Tom Williams, host of Access Utah. In her memoir, Year of No Sugar, Eve Schaub recounts her family's attempt to eliminate sugar from their lives. Next week in an episode of Access Utah, we're going to talk about your attempts, successful or not, to change your eating habits. 
And I'd like to hear from you right now. If you go online to upr.org and respond to our question, what's in your diet, you can help guide the episode. By telling us about your eating choices and experiences, you'll become a valued source in the Public Insight Network, our source base of listeners who help shape our coverage of issues by sharing their stories and insights. Just go online to upr.org and click Become a Source. And thank you. Utah State University and fellow land-grant institutions are celebrating 100 years of cooperative extension established by the Smith-Lever Act of 1914. The act was introduced to expand the vocational, agricultural, and home demonstration programs in rural America, with its network of county offices delivering educational programs at the grassroots level. Kudos to USU Extension for a century of responding to critical and emerging issues with research-based, unbiased information. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ros Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and box lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com. And by Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. July 9th through August 9th in Logan, with 128 festival events, including concerts, classes, and performances of Les Miserables, The Student Prince, Oklahoma, and Vanessa. Details at utahfestival.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.